0: Some things you can't see, but you can hear. This is one of the most amazing. If you know what it is, you get it. If you don't, stay tuned and you will. ReSound, in celebration of the ear. Welcome to ReSound, curated by the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Each week, we gather interesting audio from around the world. Narratives, features, soundscapes, documentaries, humorous essays, and everything else that intrigues us, and bring it to you Sundays at 5. I'm Gwen Maxai. Everyone asks, where do you find this stuff? We answer, everywhere. Our colleagues, the Internet, word of mouth, sound of ear. Tonight, we bring you three stories. The first is tracking. You don't always have to take what they give you, even in high school. Then, hard-hearted Hannah, where the Osmonds meet the War of the Roses. And dreaming in Farsi, going home to a place you've never been. You never know what you'll hear on ReSound. So come, take a break, take a seat, take a listen. Is there anything more frustrating than being denied an opportunity that you know you could take advantage of if only you were given the chance? That's what happened to Jamita Haskell. When she was in high school, she was given a taste of honors-level classes, but then, due to overcrowding, she was dropped back into the mainstream. She was not happy. Our first piece today is the story of how she took action. It's called Tracking. Tracking.
1: I'm usually doing homework till around midnight because on top of what I get from school, I also get homework from my moms. I mean, my mother. She'll kill me if I don't speak correctly. She gave me a whole bunch of hard words, and I have to write the definition down, and then she gives me a due date always doing homework, dad. My family wants my success more than I do, including my little nephew, Rashawn. I'm
2: helping
1: me, too. He tries to help me with my homework late at night, even though he's not supposed to be up. Um, I'm
2: homework.
1: Ever since I started at Curtis High School, my mom and I both felt I wasn't being pushed to the limit. I wasn't feeling the fact that I was being taught what a noun or adjective is at age 15. Let me explain. Basically, at my high school, there are different levels or tracks one is called Mainstream. That's the one anyone can be in. The others are for kids who get higher grades. One is called SIS. But I always called it stand on stupidity, only because I wasn't in it. Ms. Fernandez is the lady who runs the SIS program. Could you explain what the differences are between the regular Mainstream classes and the SIS?
0: The curriculum is supposed to be more challenging and a little more difficult than the Mainstream classes. And. They work perhaps a little harder. I have to
1: admit, that really wasn't me when I was in middle school. I had a 75 average. Nah, no good, no good. Do you remember me, Miss Murphy?
0: Yes, I do, Jamita.
1: Mr. Murphy was my favorite assistant principal.
0: I followed you from the time that you came in in the sixth grade, and I graduated you out of the eighth grade.
1: If I would have showed them an initiative to be in any of the honor classes, would I have moved forward.
3: Well, first of all, you you did okay when you
0: were here. And I I think if you had shown more initiative, you would have had a shot at getting into um, an honors class. Sometimes, though, you talk to a child who's 12 or 13 years old, and they don't really see the importance of tracking
3: and what they're going to be doing when they get to high school. So sometimes they don't take the initiative, even though it's there, the potential is there.
1: This is Jay, I'm in front of Curtis High School and about a year and a half ago, I came here, I was a freshman. I was anxious about being here because I knew by by coming to this high school, I was going to reach high. When I was a freshman in high school, my brother's girlfriend showed me how I could change the ways of my middle school days. She was a senior and she did everything. Track, basketball, class vice president, ROTC, she got noticed. She taught me to look for my challenge, but at Curtis, I was put into mainstream classes, where the challenge was focusing on my work while someone hummed a song they were listening to, or threw a paper at the teacher, or found out what happened on TV last night. All these kids was being all bad and still getting good grades. My friend Tashia feels the same way I do. Like, when you're in mainstream classes, like, teachers don't care, like, if you got it or not. Like, they only teach people that's in the front or something. My ninth grade history teacher was different, his name is Mr. Arguelles, and he's always like, get to class, get to class, get to class. <laughs> we call him a fiend. He's one of the few teachers who looks for potential in all his students. When you were teaching me, did you see potential on me?
4: Um, almost immediately. You worked very hard, your hand was always up, you were always on time, your homework was always in, done well.
1: I felt that I was doing well in my classes, too well. But I just figured that this is where I was put, so this is where I should be. I would just graduate at the top of the bottom. To be honest with you, I never thought that I could be in the higher classes, but Mr. Arguelles proved me wrong. He got me into an SIS history class.
4: I felt that you would benefit from uh, an environment where such work was the norm. I felt that 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 was necessary for you, that was a better environment for you.
1: It was a whole other habitat. I got this teacher, Mr. Buxbaum, who could turn your worst subject into your best one. We got brand new books that crackles when you open them and everything. If there was a debate going on, they raise their hands and say, well, I can understand your opinion, but. In mainstream, they'll be shouting about your baby's mother's sister by the time the discussion ends. I was liking Mr. Buck's class, doing my homework, participating, you know. But just as I was getting started, I got kicked out. Do you remember what my
0: situation was? Yes. One of your teachers felt that you excelled in history. Mm-hmm. So you were placed in an SIS history class.
1: That's Ms. Fernandez again.
0: And unfortunately, we are totally overcrowded. The SIS here at Curtis is very overcrowded. So that's why, unfortunately, kids who weren't in the SIS house had to go into a different history. or a di- That's what happened to
1: you. I got dropped from one SIS class because I wasn't officially in the program. Hey, this is Jay. Um, I'm in uh, front of Curtis High School. I got switched to mainstream. I got different books, which is garbage books. I got a different teacher. I'm not saying that the teacher was garbage, but the day I found out I was dropped from the SIS program, I had a why attitude. Like, why are you doing this to me? I was mentally sick from the roller coaster. It brought me to the top where I could see myself going to a good college, then it dropped me to the bottom where I could see myself going nowhere. I think I would be able to be in the SIS program if it wasn't so crowded. I think that I would be able to get a better education if the school wasn't crowded. And I wasn't the only one this was happening to. My friend Lisa also got kicked out of the one SIS class she was in. We're in the library, so I had to whisper.
5: I tried talking to my SAS teacher, Mr. Danza, and he said he'll try to take care of it, but nothing ever happened, so.
1: Nothing happened? But on a website about my school, it says we had the opportunity to achieve our fullest potential. This doesn't feel like an opportunity to me. There's this education expert from NYU, Joe McDonald. He told me he thinks schools that track students are sending the wrong message.
4: We know that some of you are gonna go on to college and you're gonna get intellectually powerful education and you can get it at this school. We'll provide that. We know that some of the rest of you are never going to go to college so we're going to give you a lower level kind of education. And that's the way the system was designed. And we've still got plenty of those high schools left in New York City.
1: There are ways that you can
0: move from mainstream classes to the higher programs. They would have to attain at least an 85 average, a cumulative 85 average and get recommendations from their English teacher their history teacher, their science teacher, all their academic
1: subjects. And by accident, I found one more way to get into the advanced program. Because of my mic and my big mouth, my principal, Mr. Cito, found out what happened to me and helped me get into the SIS program permanently this semester. He actually wrote on my class transfer form, I want this done now. I'm in an SIS homeroom, and in my SIS English class, I understand why Petruchio loves Catherine and William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew*. I'm also enjoying being back with Miss Buxbaum in History, where I sit next to Lisa. After she heard what happened with me and Mr. Cito, she decided to have a big mouth, too. But this story is for those who don't have a mic or a big mouth and for those who are in school doing the right thing but don't even know there's a better education out there because they've been in lower classes since they were 11 or 12. There is something better out there for you. So scream, bring out your parents, be noticeable. You have
0: a chance to succeed, like me. Tracking was produced by Radio Rookies, a youth training program at WNYC in New York. It was reported by Jamita Haskell under the supervision of producers Serena Patel and Marianne McCune. Tracking won the 2003 Third Coast Festival Public Service Award, which recognizes a documentary or feature that's made a difference in people's lives. Jamita took this bold step in high school two years ago. Now we wanted to know if it made a difference. So we asked her.
1: I ran for president my junior year, and I was the president
0: of my entire school the senior year. How do you think things would be different if you hadn't fought to get in the honors program?
1: I wouldn't be as prepared to go into college as if I was a mainstream student. You read Shakespeare and how to write a, a thesis a thesis statement and a thesis essay. SIS works you more than... Um, than regular mainstream students, I remember it was two weeks left for school, and I I knew I was graduating already, and yet I was still writing writing eight pages for for an essay, preparing me to college. When I remember my friends weren't doing anything.
0: How do you think this experience is going to affect you from here on here on in, either in college or whatever you go on to do? What do you take away from all this?
1: That <laughs> as my story says. Your mouth is does a lot for you um by speaking up if you find something wrong is one one of the most greatest attributes that you can have. I may not be tracked in um college or I may not be tracked in a job that I'm pursuing or a career that I'm pursuing, but one of the biggest things that I took from making this story was that. Me having an outspoken voice had helped me, and I think it will help me in the future.
0: Jamita Haskell is headed to the College of Stanton Island next year, where she's thinking of going into radio. What's the saying, the family that plays together stays together? Well, such was not the case for Hannah Hose. Our next story is from the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies, one of the few places in the country that trains people to become audio documentary producers. Produced by Joni Murphy, Hard-Hearted Hannah is the story of a family, a band, and tap dancing.
4: Come and meet
5: those dancing feet. Think of a musical, any musical. The chances are good that Hannah Hose has seen it um phantom of
6: the opera twice the lion king twice um cats rent ten times almost 11 now um oh we saw peter pan in boston
5: almost since birth hannah's parents have nurtured her love of theater peter pan was the
6: first show i ever saw and i was like four maybe and i still remember my mom picking me up from daycare and taking me down to the theater we didn't know if we were going to get tickets and we couldn't have except that they let us stand on two chairs in the back and i stood there until intermission and i was just amazed
5: right around the same time hannah saw peter pan her parents bought an upright piano at a garage sale she's been playing it ever since at eighteen she's an accomplished pianist who's comfortable with just about every kind of music show tunes jazz blues classical when hannah was a kid she also played another kind of music, a kind that now makes her cringe. Family folk music.
4: I want to walk a mile in your shoes. I want
6: to walk a mile in your shoes. I want to know what you're thinking, what you're
4: feeling. So I really want to walk a mile in your shoes. We were genuinely a family band and we were not singing, This Land is Your Land.
5: That's Phil Hose, Hannah's dad and the founder of the Hose Family Band.
4: We were singing about our own family life, um, the great things and and the edgy things, and I think people liked that. The songs were good, often funny. And Hannah was the centerpiece. She was, in my opinion, a great lead singer.
6: So come down, Santa, please say shalom. You could drop off a present if it would make you feel at home. I'll leave some matzo for your reindeers, some lock keys for you, and a note that says Merry Christmas
5: from um, June. The Hose family band traveled all over Maine. They also performed in places as far away as New York City and Los Angeles. They were well-known in the family folk music circuit, But this success was, in fact, one of the problems that came out of the band. In Hannah's estimation, a successful band is not necessarily the best thing for a family. It's just one extra thing. Like, in most families, the parents
6: are primarily concerned with just being a parent of their kid. But in this situation, uh, my parents were also concerned about, like, putting out the best product that our family was trying to show. So I was supposed to be this happy little kid without any problems or anything and if i did then it wasn't part of the act and like it was okay to have problems at home but just not on the road i guess
4: when we used to rehearse those songs i would say to her these aren't songs these are plays you're in a play and 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 our job is to act this play out to the audience these aren't this isn't this land this is your land, you know, we're we're in these little family psycho dramas.
7: Oh pain and agony. Oh pain and agony. Snack is almost
6: over and no one wants to trade with me.
5: Hannah's mom Shoshana, who was the other active member of the band, remembers the experience differently than either Phil or Hannah.
0: I think we were, pre- Phil and I were pretty clear about the fact that being a family was way more important than being a band. And so um, we didn't really push the performing in ways that would have made our family life really strange.
5: All of them do agree that playing together was intense. They performed about every six weeks, and in between, they were writing new songs and rehearsing. Because so much of Hannah's time was spent with her family, she says that the fantasy world of plays and stories were especially important because they offered a much-needed escape. I was obsessed with Peter Pan for a long time. Of the countless stories that Hannah knew growing up, Peter Pan definitely stands out as one of her absolute favorites. Hannah has read the book and has seen the play, the musical, and the cartoon dozens, if not hundreds of times.
6: You get to be young forever, you get to go far away to Never Never Land and hang out with other kids and you don't have to grow up and there's no responsibilities and battle bad guys and stuff. Doesn't that sound like more fun than going to school and growing up and getting a job?
4: Yeah, Peter Pan was, was always a big deal for her and, and to this day, I mean, they are parts of her kind of that, that won't grow up. She won't learn to drive. She still wears uh, pajamas to school every now and then or to uh, play rehearsal. And yet, I mean, she's an interesting person because in other ways, I mean, she is flinty hard, you know.
5: After seven years performing, Hannah quit when she was 13. Without her, the band dissolved.
6: I was just sick of it. I didn't want to be treated like I was four anymore. I just wanted to go on with my life, and do other things, try new things. My dad made it very difficult. I tried to quit a bunch of times before, but he wouldn't let me. So finally, I had my mom on my side then, and she was like, "Uh, you have to realize that Hannah's quitting
0: now, (laughs) no more family band. (laughs) And she just needed to, like, you know, rebel or put distance or whatever, you know. So she didn't rebel by coming by becoming into grunge music or something, but she just stopped being part of the whole scene.
4: I blame myself sometimes maybe, for being too powerful. Boy, have I tried to back off over the years and, and so that's one thing I think. Uh, possible. I mean, it seems to me that by now she ought to be secure enough in uh, the incredible um, richness of her gift. She won't sing with us. You know, she won't play with us.
5: Though Hannah still refuses to play music with her parents, there are a lot of things that they have found time to do together without the pressures of the family band. On Tuesday nights, Hannah and Shoshana take a street funk class together at a dance studio close to their home. Phil and Hannah have also found at least one thing to do together that they both enjoy. Every year, since Hannah was about 16, the two of them have gone to New York for a weekend full of Broadway shows. Hannah's starting college soon, so their most recent visit may be their last for a while. Because of this, Phil and Hannah found time in their busy schedule to do something special. They performed together. But this time, the only audience they had was each other.
6: Um, Last time we went there, there's a little place you can go on the roof and my dad's been trying to learn how to tap but he doesn't really quite get it a lot of the time. So he took his tap shoes and I took my tap shoes and I taught him how to tap dance on the roof.
0: It was cool hard-hearted hannah produced by joni murphy for the salt institute for documentary studies in portland maine since graduating from salt joni's been making radio at sound portraits productions in new york as well as traveling through the southwest and canada doing various art writing and sound projects she's now back in vancouver preparing for a master's in communications. Up next, the sights and sounds of Iran. But first, we want to play you some music. As you probably know by now, given the devotion that you have to resound, when we play a tune, we like to try and play things you might not get a chance to hear otherwise. And we also like to play a nice big chunk of it so that you can actually spend a few minutes enjoying it. This is Emperor Penguin from the CD Shatter the Illusion of Integrity. Yeah. That's the name, not my commentary. Shatter the illusion of integrity. Yeah. From the band Emperor Penguin. You're listening to ReSound, a program that brings you all sorts of stories from all around the world on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxey. Some of you might remember Shirley Jihad from the year she spent as a news reporter for Chicago Public Radio. Well, she left Chicago a few years ago and now reports from San Diego. But before she left, she produced our next piece, Dreaming in Farsi about traveling back to Iran with her family. She and her brother, both born in America, had never been there. Her parents hadn't visited their homeland in over 40 years. Not only did global problems keep them away, personal issues did as well. Shirley's father preferred to remember the people he knew in Iran just as they were when he left them. He was scared and worried about what he might find if he went back. But Shirley's family did, and our next story, Dreaming in Farsi, is the story of what happened.
8: My parents, my brother, and I board the flight to Iran, and I feel like we're on the edge of a dream. I am in the middle of a plane full of Iranians, and I am elated during my life in america in the south and midwest i have never been in a room filled with so many iranians the persian woman across the aisle from me lives in memphis now she gushes you are going to love iran and then warns Just keep an open mind. Hours later, once we touch the airspace of Iran, all the women on board the plane have to cover their heads. As I do this, my brother sends me a greeting. Bye-bye, Shirley. Hello, Shirin. (laughs) How do I look? Like a Shirin. Everything Everything okay? Everything in check? Looks good. We've waited four decades for this moment. My mother and I look out the window as we approach.
7: That looked beautiful. Oh, all the, the light. What all the Tehran word? on the
8: window looked
7: like Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Everything light and bright.
0: We're touching
8: down in Tehran. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Yay. It's dark, the middle of the night when we arrive in Tehran. My cousin Hadi picks us up. My brother George is already getting into a groove, connecting with family, and practicing his Persian.
0: Bless you. Salud. No, what do you say when somebody says uh, no, Afiat bashe. Afiat bashe. Say
8: uh, Afiat bashe. Salamat bashi. Sal- easier. Salamat, bashe. Salamat, bashe.
0: Salamat bashe.
8: Tehran is a sprawling, non-distinct, congested city of some 12 million people. Still, there is somehow a gentleness in the night air, I find, as my brother and I step out onto a tiny balcony at my cousin's house. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, the night we arrive. Look at, It's a full moon over yeah, it Tehran. Is. It is. It's beautiful. Yeah, we're lucky. It's great
4: our first night here. Mm-hmm. What do you think your first night? I'm excited. I'm very happy to be here. Um, and wondering why we didn't come a long time ago.
3: We're out here, Dad. I remember the last time I saw the moon was like that. I was out in the street. moon was big and bright, cloudless, cloudless sky.
8: Mom comes out on the balcony, too. Dad starts telling a story about the night before he left Iran, more than 40 years ago. The moon was full that night, too. I say, I am going tomorrow,
3: America. And any time you miss me, just look at the moon, you will see my face. Then I look
7: at the moon. <laughs> While we were walking, it was full moon and very romantic and, you know, beautiful. And he say, every time you remember me, just look at the moon and see my face in the moon. So I was, was hoping she kissed me, but she didn't.
3: <laughs> You're I was hoping, bashful. I was very bashful to kiss her. You were
8: hoping after you said that she'd give you a kiss. Yeah, but, but she didn't.
3: No, was hopeless case. <laughs>
8: <laughs> we only stay in Tehran a day and a half. Everyone is in a hurry to get to another city, our hometown Shiraz. This is where the family is from, on both my dad and my mom's side. My mom is excited and also anxious about seeing the family after so many years, even decades away. She wonders how we will be received, whether people will resent us after being in America so long at a time when people in Iran were suffering. Like many Iranians, we have various family members who were shot, jailed, tortured or even killed under both the Shah and the Ayatollahs. When we arrive at the airport in Shiraz, an Iranian official checks our papers and sees the decades elapsed on my dad's passport. He says to my father, Dir Dirkardid, what took you so long? A simple question from a complete stranger, but it strikes my dad's heart. My normally stoic dad starts tearing up. He has to lean on a bench to collect himself. Sixty or seventy family members show up to welcome us, most of them we've never met. They hug and kiss and cry and shower us with Persian terms of endearment.
0: <laughs>
8: they say, am, azizam, beram. My dear, my heart, I love you, I would die for you. They throw flowers at us, our hands are full of bouquets.
0: Welcome to Shirok, <laughs> this is my brother.
8: One beautiful Iranian woman, a cousin of mine I've never seen, wraps her arms around me, says in a raspy voice, whispers in my ear, we've been waiting for you. I get goosebumps. My brother George says he feels like a rock star. It's a remarkable, instant connection to a large community he never knew he had. My mom says the reception reveals more about them than us.
7: You know, we've been away for 42 years. And we have not seen or known these people at all. We haven't had much contact. So I did not really expect to see that much emotion, that much generosity, that much kindness. My dad's feelings are mixed.
3: I was jolly, happy, sad, all
8: of the above. We're whisked away in what seems like a wedding caravan, two dozen carloads of people. We head to the first of many feasts. I keep saying, Hosh everything tastes great. We go from one family gathering to the next. In Iran, being a good host is of the highest value. Stories of hosting prowess are the subject of family lore for years and years. My dad is trying to enjoy himself, but still, he looks like he doesn't quite feel comfortable in his own skin. He sits in this awkward way, like he's not sure if he belongs here, like he feels out of place somehow. I ask to see old family photos, I look at the old pictures and hold them like treasured archives, archaeological finds, like shards of pottery giving clues of my parents' past life. Shiraz is known as the city of roses and poetry, and my parents' most nostalgic memories of this place are intertwined with this image. The tombs of the great Persian poets are here, Hafez and Saadi. People from all over the country gather in the tea house and in the colorful gardens surrounding the tomb. This is how it was when my parents were growing up. To them, it's still magical.
7: People come in the tomb of Hafez that's been here for ages to relax because Hafez poem is very, very relaxing and people come just walk with the joy and the pleasure of being in Hafez.
3: Iranians do this ritual,
8: it's kind of like fortune telling. You ask a question about your destiny, then you open the book of Hafez poems to find the answer. It's called doing a fall a Hafez. My father does it. For me, the scene seems classically Persian, artful, romantic. I find myself wishing more of Iran were like this wondering if it was more like this before. The poet's tombs seem to be the only public place where I see girls and boys sitting, talking, and flirting together. Anywhere else, they'd be too scared to do this. They could even be arrested. Okay, I'm covering up.
7: It's good? I just hold it here? No, you have to hold it like it? this, like this.
8: Every Iranian woman has to be covered, of course. But when we visit mosques or shrines, we have to cover even more, where the full-length black draping, called the chador. It's hard, just logistically, keeping this big sheet draped around you properly. I fumble with it, but keep trying. I know people hold it in their teeth to keep it together. I want to try holding it in my teeth. Over. Okay. Is it good now? It's in my teeth. Yeah, that's good. Well,
7: the tip of your hair is sticking. Is this right? Am Uh, I doing this right? Yeah, that's good. I
8: went on this trip trying to be open or tolerant of this covering, but what happens over time is other emotions start seeping in. When the covering slips and your hair does show, for instance, somehow, even though no one has told you this, you feel like you've shamed the whole family. Then you get angry, like, why is the whole family's honor based on whether I can keep this thing on my head the right way? When I talk with other women about this, they say they have other concerns, economic concerns, they say are bigger. Even though they're required to cover their bodies, Iranian women still find ways to show their strength. They say more women than men are in medical school. They run households and businesses, and it shows up in quirky ways as well. One day, I'm walking down the street. I see this girl running intently. She ducks into a narrow stairwell. Out of curiosity, I follow. Turns out, it's a group of women practicing karate. Still, as I have to be constantly conscious of this covering, I find my anger starts to simmer. Every time I'm in a car with the windows down, the wind blows the scarf off, so my hair shows. So finally, one time I decide, I'm just leaving it off. I'm in a car, who's looking? I'm letting the wind blow through my hair, free. It feels good. I feel like a rebel. We stop at a light. A guy standing on the corner in front of a fruit market gestures to me like, put the head covering back on. I think, ugh. I put it back on. Then he blows me a kiss. Actually, he's not being a jerk. He's just being cautious. To him, it's as if he's saying, hey lady, your shoelaces are untied. Public dancing is prohibited in Iran, but people do dance in private, inside their homes. I have this one cousin named Mehdi. At family parties, he's always the first one up and dancing. He moves his arms, his head, he dances all around. The thing is, he only has one leg. His other leg got blown off in the Iran-Iraq war 20 years ago. He was just standing in the doorway of his house in the south of Iran when his leg got blown off. I have another cousin who could see the bombs dropping from his living room window. His name is Dariush. He says President Bush calls Iran the axis of evil. Iran called the U.S. Shatana Bozorg, the great Satan. He says that's referring to each other's governments. It doesn't matter much. But war, he says, is another thing entirely.
9: Now, Mr. Bush, you want only war. Why? Why? All countries want to be without war, you know. In war, you cannot have a good life. We had eight years here, war. Too much people kill here.
8: In Iran, the holy day is Friday, and one of the busiest places to be on a Friday morning is the cemetery. There's a huge traffic jam to get in. Walking through the cemetery, you see row after row after row of pictures of young people. Eight by ten photos posted above their gravestones. It seems to go on endlessly. These are the young people who died in the Iran Iraq war, more than a million of them. My mom has decided to come to the cemetery to see the graves of her father, her mother, and brothers who've passed away. It's a struggle for her.
7: This is-
8: Still, she says it's a relief as well.
7: I'm very glad I came, you know. I'm glad to. It's very
8: good, yeah. My dad is ornery and uncomfortable. This is exactly why he was apprehensive about returning home to Iran for so long. He didn't want to grapple with the reality that so many people he loved are gone, have died. He wanted to assume they were alive and happy here, like in some kind of dream. Now, as we walk into this very real cemetery, he wonders aloud, why did we come here? Just to cry and cry and cry? His mother is buried right nearby. She died shortly after he left Iran now, he says, he still doesn't want to go see her grave. When I suggest we should go, he refuses. During our weeks in Iran, we are the only Americans we see. We do spot the occasional European, Japanese, or Korean tourists. Somehow everyone can tell we're American. They can even tell with my dad. They think he's a foreigner. They ask him, where did he learn to speak Persian so well? I guess he's not as Iranian as he thought anymore.
3: Man? <laughs>
8: My normally shy brother George is blooming we go to Esfahan. It's one of Iran's most beautiful, artful cities. Classic Persian and Islamic architecture is all around us. A blue-domed mosque is in the background over my brother's shoulder, as crowds of strangers gather around and engulf him to talk, share stories, ask about his life in America.
6: My God, America!
8: My American identity intersects with my Iranian identity, one afternoon, with a curious twist. It happens during the annual demonstration marking the anniversary of the taking of the U.S. Embassy in Iran. The demonstrators are shouting, marg bar america, death to America. The demonstrators are mostly elementary school children. 12-year-old girls with backpacks slung over their shoulders. The children are let out of school early, directed to stream into the streets for this march. At one point, they notice me standing there. They realize I'm American, and then they say...
5: We love you. We love you.
8: They say, we love you. I try to ask, how can you say we love you and at the same time chant, death to America? One girl answers quickly, okay, 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 and brushes me off. I take this to mean, don't bother me with the details. Don't let a little political disagreement get in the way of a polite interaction. Don't you know this is just politics? It's different than personal relations. Later, I talk with my 15-year-old cousin a little bit about Americans' perceptions of Iran and Iranians' perceptions of America. People in America, if you say you're going to Iran, the first thing they say is be careful. Are you sure it's safe? I think it's dangerous. Maybe you shouldn't go. But I don't think it's like that. They should know that we are people like them. When an Iranian says to another Iranian, I'm going to America, what do they say to each other? I'll congratulations, at last
2: you have won a visa, oh, that's really nice. I wish you'll get your green card, I wish you'll be a citizen. I really get sad when I hear that. They hate us because they haven't come here to see. You know, I think we haven't go there to see too, and from here we love them, but from there they hate us. We don't need it. The revolution was not the thing that we done. Our fathers did that, and we are so sad about it. We wish we didn't have the revolution at last.
8: Her attitude is typical of many young people, and the young are the big majority in Iran. Two-thirds of the population is under 30. During the Iran-Iraq war, the mullahs banned family planning. They encouraged people to make babies for the army of God and all that. Now all those kids are grown and need jobs, but there are too few jobs for them. Okay, introduce who this is.
7: This is
3: Ayama.
8: Really popular in Iran?
3: Very popular.
8: Even though it is popular, music like this, pop music from around the world, is officially banned in Iran. But my cousin Afshin knows where to get it. And it's playing loud in his car stereo as we drive through Shiraz with the windows rolled up. Afshin knows how to work the system, or work around the system. So many things are illegal in Iran, like videos, satellite dishes, and liquor. But Afshin has just the right phone numbers to make a call and get just about anything delivered directly to his door. He says the homemade Iranian cognac is particularly good. Afshin says the underground economy gives a lot of people jobs.
3: The money they earn from their first job is not enough because they don't have enough money to support their family. So they start making vodkas or they sell movies which is not legal in the country. So people uh, make good money in black market.
8: Sometimes in Iran, it's not so clear-cut. What's legal and illegal, which ban will be winked at and which will be enforced. It's a slippery situation. Some things slip through, other things don't. There's this wacky Iranian version of a TV sitcom. Most Iranian broadcasting is dominated by the mullahs. The clerics have programs on the air all day and all night. But sometimes other programs get on, like this one. My cousin Hajar says it's popular, it's funny, and it's political satire.
2: All characters are a symbol of the real political persons, like the leader, like Mr. Khatami, like Mr. Rafsanjani. We have all of them, huh? For example, the one who is similar to Khamenei was saying, "I want complete power," and he was telling the one that was looked like Mr. Khatami that, "I don't want you. You bother me. I mean, Such a thing, you know."
8: When I tell my cousin I'm from Chicago, she says she loves Chicago. And I'm thinking, what does this Shirazi girl know about Chicago? Then she and another cousin of mine, Omid, tell me the TV programs and movies shown in Iran from America are often shot in Chicago.
5: You know, in Iran, they showed films that they made in winter.
8: Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> they show
0: films made in winter. In winter yeah. yeah. Because people have too many clothes on it. But yeah. they have enough clothes on in winter. Yeah. But if they're made in summer, they don't have enough clothes on it. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you saw a lot of Chicago. Yes, that's really right. <laughs> All films are
2: happening in cold areas or in winter. Because of that, they show movies of Chicago. <laughs> the actors are completely covered.
0: <laughs>
2: that was really true. <laughs>
8: The issue of women being covered, or even invisible, comes up in lots of odd ways. At one family party, my uncle Mesbah pulls out an old book of names. Turns out, it's a family tree that goes back centuries. Can you explain what is this?
9: Yes. This is a book which says who I am, who my father was. My father of father, my father of father of father, Till grand grandson of Muhammad, prophet. Mm. Now we can see your brother's name, George.
8: Uh-huh.
9: Now his father is not there.
8: There's my brother's name, George, written in Persian script.
9: Our father is Muhammad. Uh-huh. Father our father is Mir Ahmad.
3: Uh-huh.
9: Father of the Kareem, Mir Muhammad. Mir Ahmad the so it's a family tree, it's a book yeah.
8: of a family tree.
9: Family tree, yes, yeah, that's right. Yes. And it
8: goes how many hundred years?
9: These 1400 years ago, about 1400.
0: No girls in here, though. Only
8: boys.
7: Yeah,
9: only boys. <laughs> Where are the girls? No, no, there's no girls. No, girls? <laughs> no, 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 girls, no girls. Jenna. Not even these. <laughs> All sons. There's no name of girl in this house. Yeah.
8: At this point, I figure there's no way he'll understand, so I drop it. Okay, part of me knows I shouldn't be, but I am astonished at this. I find it ironic and moronic, this whole book of names, the whole family tree for 1400 years. I love the history in it, but where are the women? It's particularly nonsensical because the Prophet Muhammad raised one child, a daughter, Fatima. So the whole lineage would drop away into nothing. There would be no book at all if it weren't for his daughter, a woman. At another family gathering, my cousin Hadi puts on this wonderful tape. This woman singing sounds so beautiful to me, like she's singing about love and longing. This is my dad's niece, my cousin Shaghai. She no longer lives in Iran, she lives in Germany. Turns out her beautiful voice is banned. My cousin Hadi explains.
3: Your dad asks uh, why she she doesn't continue and uh, why she doesn't work more and she don't sell the tape and cassettes uh, in the bazaar. She cannot come here and uh, sing and practice here in Iran because the women are not allowed to to sing.
8: So this tape we're listening to is forbidden tape.
3: Yes, it's forbidden tape. Uh, it is played there in Germany. It could not be played. It could not be. Uh, soul dear this kind of uh,
8: music. One of the most beautiful places we visit is called Shah Chirag. It means King of Light. It's a shrine and it's all glittery mosaic mirrors, like the whole inside of the building is made of diamonds. It shimmers like a magical palace. Outside in the courtyard, it's surprising as well. You take off your shoes and walk over these vast Persian carpets. But all through the square, underneath those carpets, are these marble-topped graves. Who's here? My sister, Adi's mother. Oh, I know. Shokat is buried under this carpet. My dad finds his sister is buried here. Under another carpet is his brother. I'd like to see. Yeah, let's see it. What's it? What's it saying? It, it? it?
3: Okay. says, Say this show we have Bibamid Jahad, Wafad, 1379, to Time of death. Mm. This is time of death. Her 30. name in the time yeah, of death? Yes. Uh, yes.
9: After all his resistance, yes.
8: suddenly I see my father confront his fears. He stands at this grave, softly crying. A little while later, we talk about it. So you were facing all the deaths that you had been avoiding for so many years.
3: Yes, but uh, now it's over, I'm getting relieved.
8: You had constructed this dream of them being happy and alive and well.
3: No, I'm creating something in my head, which is a heaven and they are there and we, I may join them in future. Scientifically, if I want to think, I cannot believe such thing, but I don't go in that direction, so I go in di- religious direction.
8: Religious instead of scientific. Right. right.
3: Because if I go through the scientific, it's hopeless, then it gets sad.
8: If you take the scientific route, it's hopeless. Right.
3: Yes, because you know there cannot be such an after there's something. I don't know scientifically how can. People die here, then go sit down it, garden of heaven.
8: You know, I feel like people have fears that are real or in their heart or in their mind, and then something happens and they confront it. What it, was it like for you?
3: You have to face when reality comes. You have to face reality. And I faced it. Everybody has to come and go. Why we come in, why we go in, I don't have answer for it, but that's what we have to do.
8: After seeing his old home and facing the deaths of his family members, my dad seems visibly different. Something's loosened in him. Something that seems stuck broke loose, and you can see it in his body. He sits more comfortably. He even starts laughing and singing a flirtatious old Persian song. Now I see this change in my dad and I realize I've had this dream for so long to come to Iran with my whole family I put this dream in front of me, as if on a pedestal, and I kept it there, just out of reach. Admired it from a distance, with great longing and nostalgia, but never quite touching it. In life you have these dreams, and it's important to live them, because sometimes you carry them, just hold them up on that pedestal. But then they can keep you from moving on. I found how important it is to live your dreams. You have to get to the other side of them, because that dream may really be just one step in your
3: path.
0: Dreaming in Farsi, produced by Shirley Jihad for Chicago Matters, an annual public affairs series on Chicago Public Radio. This is my daughter, Ruby. Her gestational age was 14 weeks when I recorded her prenatal heartbeat. When I listened to it then, and when I listen to it now, I'm not just awestruck, I'm, well, completely flattened by what it means, what it sounds like, and what it represents. When you can't see something, of course, the sound of it becomes that much more powerful. The simple fact is, the ear is much more sophisticated than the eye. And while my sister, the ophthalmologist, may argue with me, think about this. In film, it takes 24 frames per second to fool your eyes into believing that a still image is really moving. To make a CD, you have to take a piece of music and sample it 44,000 times per second to fool your ear into thinking that tiny separate pieces of sound are actually a continuous moving whole. I, 24. Ear, 44,000. 24, 44,000. 24, 44,000 thousand. When it comes to sophistication, your eye is a virtual amoeba compared to the glorious, yet much passed over, ear. Do you hear sonnets dedicated to the ear? No. Have the ears ever been labeled window to the soul? Don't think so. Could you drown in the watery pool of your loved one's ear? Okay, that's just gross. The best the ear ever gets is a cruel comparison to cauliflower, a gaseous vegetable no one likes anyway. But you get my point. Overworked, underappreciated the ear that's all for today's show ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Kadia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org ReSound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Good night.